family life can be both rewarding and frustrating. That is why we are here to strengthen families with quality information and support to meet the many challenges they face. Welcome to In Support of Families. Parents all over the world have been through the same trials that you are facing. Your host, Emma Lou Penrod, is here to help with valuable parenting tips for a happy, orderly home. Amy Broadbent is with me today. She is a wife and mother, and she's the co-founder and president of Shamba Foundation, a rather unique and amazing organization. Amy, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And I am excited to have you tell us about Shamba Foundation. I understand there's quite a story behind how it was founded. Yeah, it was... um... It was definitely unexpected. Uh, I, my husband and I went to Kenya to visit his parents who were serving there as missionaries at the time uh, and decided that that was a place that we wanted to return with our kids. Our first visit, we had gone through one of the slums um, and it was a really, really shocking experience for me. My husband, he had been to some of these other um, underdeveloped countries before, but for me, it was something that I just couldn't, could not settle in on and just what the way these people were living and functioning um, was was really difficult for me to process and it was culturally we had we had experienced Kenya we had gone on a safari and visited the Maasai villages where by our standards we may not see them as wealthy people they're the people living with very little resources but living on the land they're kind of the people that you they're the iconic people of Kenya who have the beads and they live off the land and they have cattle as their wealth. And, but it's a very organized community of people. And even though they were poor, um, quote poor, they were unified. There was a unified system and something felt comfortable about that. Um, And then you go through the slum and there's just chaos. There's filth, there's children running everywhere. There's sewage running down the streets and they're in bare feet. There's, this the lack of infrastructure and the whole feel that you get there is is really overwhelming and then you add the smells and the different texture of things you see there and um it was just really overwhelming for me to process and so that was my first exposure to to a world like that and then the second time uh we went we want we chose to bring our oldest three children and they were six nine and 11 at the time. And we, between the times that we had visited there, had, there's a man that had, he's a wood carver by trade. Something interesting about the Kenyans is they're very tribal. There's uh, over 40 tribes, about 43 tribes. It depends on where you're looking at. Some say 43, some say 45. I settle on 43 tribes, but they, they, they all are uh, known to have a gift. And so the Akumbo tribe has the gift of wood carving. The Kalenjin tribe are your runners, people that you see, the Kenyan runners. They're of this one tribe up in one area. Some of them are good in business and gardening and things like that. And so they all have this gift. Well, this one man, he was Akumba, and he uh, was a wood carver by trade, and he would sell his art to the missionaries uh, there. Some of it was Christian art. Some of it was just standard African art. And um, he had become well-known among the the people there and one of his friends, American friends, found out that he was running a makeshift 
orphanage school um, in one of the small slums there. One of the more notorious slums is called Kibera, which is the second largest slum in the world. And, uh, and he was in this slum called Soweto, which is one of these smaller slums on the outskirts of Nairobi and Kibera. And they're often called the forgotten slums because there's so much focus on Kibera. And so they kind of, they are, they're just kind of forgotten. People don't know about them. And and so we took our kids into this school and we had activities and, and songs to teach the kids. And we spent the afternoon with them. And as we were driving through there and you're seeing these children just wanting to, I remember, I remember driving in a van, there was large windows and I had brought lunch for my daughter and she doesn't like the crust. And so I was peeling the crust off around the bread and these children were peering in begging for this crust and it was just heartbreaking it was heartbreaking to watch and witness and and you have your children here on one side and then you can see your children in the faces of the ones that are suffering as well and we just I just felt as a mother um there was something I could do and I remember the moment driving through there just thinking this friend of ours named Stephen he has he has something he's trying to do and he just needs help, but he needs it organized. He has this, this network of people that love him and wanted to help, but uh, he needed order to it. And so that was what prompted me to come home. And I contacted a few of the people that had been uh, lived there as missionaries or as, as friends and, and knew him. And I said, Hey, I have this, I want to do something, but I don't know how to do it. I need a team. This is kind of what I have in mind and who's on board. And so a few of us co-founded the Shamba foundation and I was asked to be president and, and I've been that since then. And we started the Shamba foundation. It was incorporated in 2014. We gained our nonprofit status in 2015. And we've just said, we will ride this wave as long as it lasts and we will do what we can to help. um, And we'll do it right. And and that's what we've done. We've had a lot of bumps along the ro- along the road, but came up stronger and uh, super excited about our new project. We've finally seen this goal come to reality that we've had, and I'm excited to talk about that. Yeah, I, I think that's amazing. And I, you know, I as a parent, I'm sure that would have been hard to see that level of poverty. And of course, you would want to do whatever you could. I think once you know, you need to do something. So what are some of the projects going on? I know you're you're still helping Stephen with his school and orphanage. So we're no longer working with Stephen anymore. He has, he had closed that school down um, and he's, he's, he's gone into other things, but it, it wasn't always just about Stephen. We, uh, we have, we run our programs. There's three particular programs, how we'd fund. And one is through direct impact. Like we were doing, you know, with Stephen, we would, we were providing subsidized funds to help him rather than having one meal a day. The kids, children were then able to have three meals a day, or we were purchasing bedding or learning materials, things like that. So there was a direct impact there. We also have our scholarship program and our grant program. And so those are, Students can apply for school fees or higher education through the scholarship program. 
and we'll help them fund that. And the grant program is for things like we built classrooms and we built, we built a water tank for a school, uh, things like that. And so our project now is exciting because from day one, our goal has always been to try to establish a way for these kids to get out of the slum because when you're there, you just see that this is stuck. They're just stuck. There's no, it's really difficult to get out. And so to do that, they've got to be exposed to a bigger world to see that, that they can have the capability to, to do, to do more. Cause these kids, man, if you, they're resilient, they're resourceful they they're bright they're bright kids and um they just need the opportunity and so our goal has always been to get them out of the slum and initially when we were working with steven it was specifically to build a children's home uh you know for those children he he was taking care of but uh we quickly saw that there's no shortage of orphanages orphans in um in kenya which results in no shortage of orphanages and some of them are are legit, but there's a lot of corruption in these third world countries and, and something just didn't feel like that was the direction we needed to go. And that the most sustainable, long lasting impact would be through the family model. And so to help these children, we need to help their mothers. And though they're in Kenya, there's a single orphan who maybe has lost one parent. There's a double orphan or a true orphan that has lost both parents. But like here, whenever a child loses a parent, there's always an aunt and an uncle. Even neighbors will take these children in. And so more, more so you see a lot of street children, which are children running around the slum that have guardians or people taking care of them, but that can't afford to take care of them. And so they're left to fend for themselves. And uh, what we saw with the children living um, there with Stephen was uh, he ha- he was housing about 30 children and not always consistently, but that was, a, that was about what he was housing. When I met them, he was actually housing 64 children and they were living on uh, about six bunk beds and they would sleep about five or six kids horizontal along that bunk bed in two, in two rooms. And these kids, but he was, t- there was about a hundred that would come to the school and you'd see these little girls come in and they're, they're dozing off and uh, the boys are tired. And, and when you get to the bottom of it, it's because the slum environment looks like this. It's kids running around. There's filth everywhere. There's markets everywhere by day. And by night it's can be a dangerous place. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of drugs and, and, alcohol in a way they mix this they, they make this brew and it's or their the children are going around they have this this concoction that they make with glue um that gets them high and for girls for little girls to make money anywhere from eight to 15 years old you'll see them standing outside of a bar to prostitute for maybe three cents enough to buy a piece of bread the boys are able to be a little bit more resourceful um, where they would take a string and tie a magnet to the end of it and they'll drag it along the road and it will pick up metals that they can turn in for, for coins to buy food. And so as these children are coming to school and they're nodding off and you start to realize why you've got to find a way to help them. And so, uh, so that's what 
our efforts started at, but then we realized they need, they need family. And so this new project is called, um, we named it Masizi Gardens. Shamba means garden in Swahili uh, and Masizi means roots. And so the focus of Masizi Gardens is to give these families a foundation that you have a single mother who's living in the slum who, uh, who just need, she, she doesn't have a lot of resources. She maybe is feeding her children. Maybe most of them can't afford school, school fees. Like the United States, kids are required to go to school. In Kenya, they're not required um, at this point. I think the government is working, you know, that that's the goal eventually, but not all the kids are attending school. And, and so we, with this project, we want, it's a transitional housing project where we take the mothers. We found families. It doesn't necessarily have to be single mothers or even single fathers or just guardians um, who will come into this transition, transitional housing development where they will be able to live in a much more comfortable circumstance. They'll have running water, they'll have a toilet, they'll have a shower. There's a community garden, um, a community family growth center, and uh, they come in and they will learn new skills and have the support of a community and professionals that can help them develop those skills to find their way out of the slum. They will have to, they'll have to have their own skin in the game. Slowly there will, the, 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 the rent will go up on a gradient um, based on their circumstances. They will have to pay rent. They will have to have chores. They will have to work the land. They will have to find a um, skill that they can help with. And with that, they also have a chance to take advantage of the scholarship program, the grant program. So with the scholarship program, that will help subsidize the school fees for the families. And with the grant program, say a mother wants to become a seamstress, that can help purchase her, her sewing machine and materials that she needs. And so, and while they're in the program, they'll be required to work through some of the learning, the, the finance, they'll have ecclesiastical leaders that will come and teach and there will be um, social workers and medical workers that will come and teach about hygiene and, and how do you build your own business, how, financial, how do you manage your finances, how do you, what is the best um, way to get an education, is it through vocational training or is it learning a skill or is it through going to university, things like that. And in the process, these kids will be able to be exposed to a world outside of what they would have would have already would have known previous to that. You know, so how expensive is it to send a child to school in Kenya? And I, I think we're used to our free public education. What is it like there? You know, it is. It depends on what grade they're in. If they're in primary level, if they're going to a private school or a public school. Typically, a, a typical public school in the area where we're building this project is you, they, they start school in January. Their, their school year is January to October, and uh, they have three terms. First term might be a little bit more expensive because you're buying supplies and things. So it could be anywhere from $150 for school fees. In the slum, maybe the school fees were $60, $40 to $60 per term. Um, you go into the some of these boarding schools, which is a thousand dollars a year. You know, so it just kind of depends. Typical rent in the slum might be in some of the worst areas. It might be eight to ten dollars. 
for a maybe an eight foot eight by eight foot room dirt floor dirt walls ten dollars a month and so these families are literally living on pennies a day um they i knew so this one one of the things that really impacted me when we went is we met a little girl named grace and uh my daughter was the same age as her at the time and so she she needed to go to the doctor she was this little girl who when we first met her she was 12 and she was just sort of inhibited she wouldn't look people in the eye and her mother was prostituting and and um an alcoholic and wasn't caring for her and her little brother and we had to go get her papers she didn't have a birth certificate and she couldn't go to the doctor without a birth certificate because a lot of these kids aren't born in a hospital or in a facility they're born on a dirt floor right there in their home in their little hut or wherever they are and so we had to go to the chief and get verification that she was had been born and that she had a birthday and so that she could go to the hospital because when she was five years old, her mother was, there's a, that women will often work as house help, which would be kind of like a maid. They go help care for the home, do the laundry, help prepare the meals. Um, and she was, uh, she was house help and she must have brought Grace along with her um, occasionally. And uh, while she was working, Grace had been raped and it pretty much destroyed her little body. And um, so when we met her, when she was 11, she um, had a colostomy basically that was draining out of her abdomen and so she was getting teased and ridiculed at school because she didn't smell good and finally when Stephen got to the bottom of it and realized we were able to provide the medical care she needed to to have surgery and um, be cared for and now she's a thriving beautiful young woman who's 18 and ready for the world and but that's the reality that's the reality for these kids is I don't, I don't even know. I, I hardly can put words to it. I just think that many of us wouldn't quite, can't quite fathom the circumstances some of these children are living in, but that they are resilient and that they can do so much. You know, as you were talking about your program, it reminded me of a book I read a number of years ago called Bridges Out of Poverty. And it was written for social workers addressing the issue of generational poverty and, and saying to get out of that, it's, they compared it to immigrating to another country, that you would have to learn a new language. You would need someone to help you, help, help explain how things work, just like you were, you're trying to let them see there is another way to live. And here are some ideas. And you mentioned the skin in the game. So this isn't just a handout. This isn't a free ride. You're teaching them, teaching them skills that they can use to change their own lives. Absolutely. And part of that came from, you know, we had a lot of transition in the school um, when we first started. We had mothers dropping kids off. Please take my child. We had there's a little, there's a story of a little girl named Blessing who was there, one of our um, board members now, she happened to be there when Blessing came. And what happened was Blessing was dropped off in the street um, outside of the orphanage. Now envision this street because it, again, it's, it's dirt, it's garbage, it's raw sewage, it's filth, it's 
everything that is not fit for a newborn. And this little girl was left there in the street, still with the umbilical attached. And uh, she was found and uh, our, one of our board members was there when that happened. And she, she actually is the one that named her blessing. And we would have kids. So, so we'd have mothers dropping children off like that. And we also had kids that would just run away or there was just all this transition or they would misbehave. And so they'd have to be removed or they, you know, and so it was so hard. We knew to make an impact. We had to take these children from, from little to, to growth. We had, they had to, we had to grow with them somehow, but to do that, they needed to stay in one place. And, and, and so being able to get out of the slum is giving them, it's giving us some, some control over that. And also the problem you have when you have 30 to 50 kids in a children's home is when Susie has a bad day and she comes home and is struggling with that, just the emotional side and the emotional impact and the support that these kids need isn't available. And so having a family model where you have a mother who has her three or four children who when they come home and they're sad, they have an, a mother that has an arm to, to put around them. Or they have, as part of this project, you have a community of people that are supporting one another who are all living in, who came from the same cloth, if so to speak. And they're there to support one another. They're all there for the same goal. Um, they all are there to take advantage of this opportunity. Um, we were there in March uh, to vet some of these families. And so a couple of the board members, my husband and I, and a couple of the board members and our friends in Kenya, we just walked into the slum one day and we walked and we, we kind of little said a little prayer and said, help us help lead us to the people that need, need this opportunity. And so we went to, we found these families and we just walked into their homes and we had a process of interview. And part of it was to say, look, this is an opportunity would you be willing to move? You know, because that's a big decision for them. They'd be moving from that, even though it's not the best environment, it's what they know and what's comfortable. And like I said before, where it's this day-to-day living, they don't see this vision of tomorrow. They may say, oh, I want to be a doctor one day, but they don't know. They really don't believe that that's possible for them. And this has given them that possibility. And so we vetted these families and interviewed them. We've met them personally and we've selected um, a handful of these families to become a part of this program who want to be there. And so they're there to support one another. And then we have a coalition of, of in the community, there's 150 people that are just in the area, the community that are full of, there's social workers, there's doctors, there's accountants, there's people from all walks of life. There's just friends and neighbors and people that can be there to support them that are looking after each other, um, that they're looking after each other there and they're looking after this program because they're part of that community. And so it's a diverse community. When I talk about the Kenya being very tribal, the tribes are in areas of land that can, they can become very territorial of. This is an area where they're very integrated. And so if you're from one tribe or another tribe, there isn't that same territorial feel Um, And so the children can go to school without feeling like an outcast or ostracized because they're not of that tribe that, that they'll, that they'll be welcomed with open arms. And 
So we're really excited about it because it is a multi-level effort. It is not just us saying, hey, do these programs and you're going to make it work. There, there's so much that's got to happen on the ground for, the, for them to wrap their minds around it and for them to have the support uh, from the people in their area to do it. And so we're, we just see a lot of potential with it. Um, we're, it's been our goal from day one. And so we're just thrilled to see it realized at this point. Um, we're still finalizing construction. Obviously, COVID uh, put a lot of, put a little bit of a bump in the road there. It cost of materials went up. Uh, people couldn't work. Uh, they shut down schools, uh, lots of things. But we are on track to complete the project really within the next month. Um, we will have our families selected uh, probably the end of September and with the goal to have them moving in November, December in time to start the school year in January. So, uh, and they're beautiful. They're beautiful people. Um, there's, there, and you see these mothers, this one we went into, uh, her little boy's name was Victor and he was just running all over the place. And she was, she was just such a fun person. I kind of, I'm like, man, I could just be her friend. I would just, I can't think of the commu- the, the belonging that they'll feel when they all come together, when these mothers uh, can come and have their children there, there will be a community garden where they can work the land together. There'll be a community playground where the kids will have a safe area to play rather than running in the street or, you know, a mile down the road. Uh, I, it, it's just really exciting and has so much, um, so much hope there. So we feel really good about it. That is wonderful. That is really amazing and you know it's doing so much good i love to hear of stories like this how much amazing and you know i found out about shamba foundation and what you're doing actually through um a friend in in kisi which you said is like four or five hours Right. You ha- yeah, it's about five and a half, five and a half hours uh, from the center of Nairobi. And I, I, my understanding is it's a more rural area. Yeah. Sure. Lydia went there as a school teacher. And then, of course, they closed the schools down, I think, in March. Yep. Closed them down for the year. They had just started in January. And I, I heard from another friend that when they, they will they won't start school again until January of twenty twenty one and they'll just they're just going to repeat last year. Yeah. It's like twenty twenty didn't happen for that school uh-huh. year. But similar challenges with mm-hmm. not enough food, not enough skills, and this concept of long long term sustainable projects they're looking at there as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and it fits so well within the Shamba mission. You know, the mission of the Shamba Foundation is to feed, clothe, house, and educate children of Kenya, which provides them an opportunity for self-reliance, optimism, and a hopeful future. And isn't that what we wish for any of us? And you you see those circumstances in, in Kisi or other rural areas where um, yeah, just the opportunities aren't there. The resources aren't there. The, the government infrastructure isn't there um, like we would have. And so they really are left to fend for themselves. And it really is a survival 
survival skills take hold. And uh, it's hard for us to imagine that sometimes. And, and you sometimes get questioned, well, why don't you just help the people here? And absolutely, we do our best to help. There's people suffering here as well. And you, you, you want to help. This is where our paths led us. And, and the difference we see here is there, there is opportunity in the United States if, if someone wants it. Absolutely. Yeah. It can be a challenging road, but the, the, the resources are available to, to help them. It's not that way. It's, you're, they're dealing with so much corruption in some of these countries. And um, the people are, they really are left to fend for themselves in a lot of ways. Uh, you have the extremes of everything, the extremes of, of poverty and the extremes of wealth. There's, there's a very minimal middle class in these types of countries and situations. And so they work together, they do their best, but they need help, absolutely. And COVID has really put, had an impact on everybody. And um, yeah, people are struggling. Well, the effect of COVID-19 that I'm seeing here where I live is that people are kind of shutting down in fear. They're, you know, they're, of course, we all want to be careful that we're not spreading anything, but I don't think we need to live in fear in our homes, afraid to connect with another human being. And there's a lot of anxiety and our domestic abuse has gone up. We're not handling the stress well. Right. And there's no, well, you taught your children this. There's no better way to be happy than to serve other people. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing this whole, what's happening with Shamba Foundation and in Kisi is a way, is an opportunity for people here in the United States to get out of their fear and lose themselves in helping someone else. Oh, it's huge. I think it's a really... Yeah, to feel like you're being able to serve, serve in some way and make an impact in someone's lives, life or lives, they, they, it, it is, it's, it's food for the soul. It just, it, it serves anybody well to serve someone else and get out of their own issues and to be exposed to that. The one thing that I have loved that I never really anticipated about the Shamba Foundation is that it's always been about families. Uh, we have a program with our junior ambassadors where we go in and we teach elementary age students, kids about poverty awareness. And so we're, we have kids teaching kids and our fundraising, we're such a, we're a small organization. And so we really try to give everybody an opportunity to, to find a way to serve and make an impact. And, and whether it's, we have a little girl that had a, had made, ran a preschool for four weeks uh, and donated the money. Uh, she was eight years old. She read and played games and and um, had activities for toddlers. And in a month's time, she was able to donate $800 to the Shamba Foundation. Or we've had kids do cupcake sales or whether it's $5 out of their piggy, piggy bank. We've given them that opportunity to feel like they can be a part of something, that they can they can have an impact too. And And because we're so small, it has a direct impact. Those pennies absolutely count. 
everything that we receive from donations goes to these families. Uh, all of the administrative costs is covered by the board members' donations themselves. We've calculated that, calculated that to make sure that donors, their money goes to the cause. And, um, and it's so rewarding for these children and families to see see their this impact that they've been able to have and see the faces that they're impacting and 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 feel that connection um right away and that's been one of the most rewarding things for me is to meet these people that that want to want to do something don't know how but have figured it out and and we provided that opportunity yeah that is so powerful what an opportunity well, I got, I'm going to have a link to your Shemba Foundation on my website, and I encourage families, you know, this is what, what more valuable gift can you give your children than to teach them how to serve, how to care for others. You know, I ended my teaching career at a residential treatment facility for youth, and a lot of them suffered from depression. And the two activities that we really stress because they're found to be the most effective were physical exercise and service. And they were the most effective in helping them. So to see a world outside yep, of their own. Get out of yourself. It'll make you feel so <laughs> much better. It does. Amy, thank you so much for everything you're doing, and thank you for your time and telling us about it. Oh, I appreciate it so much. I love sharing the stories, and I love, um, I love people giving, giving people this opportunity, and I appreciate the efforts that you're making um, to do the same. So thank you. All right. You have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening. I started this podcast with the goal of providing useful information to parents and families. I'd like to know how I'm doing. Please like and subscribe on whatever platform you're using, and then go to my website, hypnosis4motivation.com. Leave a comment and let me know what your greatest challenges are. Are there topics you'd like to learn more about that we haven't covered yet? How can we help meet your needs as a family member? Do you have a story to share that would help others? Reach out to me at hypnosisformotivation.com. Use a number four. I'd love to hear from you.